Good morning. For anyone who follows the events of our world and the nation, you know that over the past few weeks, there have been several racially charged, extremely tragic instances of people who have died either by the actions of other citizens or in the most recent occurrence in the case of George Floyd in Minnesota by law enforcement. I rarely watch video of the death of animals, let alone human beings, so the short portion of the video that I did see of that particular case, it literally made me shudder. For a very long time, I have had it in my heart to address the deep wound of racial division that has been part of our, our history and our country. And I have several close friends and ministry partners who I always thought would help me begin the conversation at the Crossing Church with the hope that maybe a simple conversation that we would have might spread, might spread to other churches, might spread to the area. If the people of God don't or can't or won't address this, who will? I'm thinking now, now is the time. And as a first offering, I've asked my very, very dear friend, Doug Adams, an African-American pastor in our area, to begin the conversation next week during this hour at 11 o'clock. Joy Church of God in the Crossing have enjoyed a wonderfully warm relationship over the years. I've preached there. He's preached in our church many times. So I thought, who better to help us, to help me begin to ask the right questions and to maybe bring about some healing in the wide racial fissures that exist? It may not be our greatest sin. It's certainly not our only sin. But we need to start a conversation you're not going to want to miss our time together next week. And pray for our nation. Well, let's uh, go back to our series. Uh, I was thinking about the subject matter this morning. I, I feel that one of the driving factors for many humans is, is the desire to be approved. I grew up convinced that my father could do anything uh, he, he wanted to do. If we got into a car and we were headed somewhere, this is pre-GPS days, Look at a map. Why? Lenny Chicole is around. You don't need a map. I don't ever recall my father looking at a map or getting lost on the road. The car needed fixing. Never once do I ever remember him bringing it to some, somebody else to get it serviced. Electrical work, painting, like carpentry. He drove this, drove this huge New York City bus with lots of people inside. Uh, I thought that was so cool for a living. He navigated the big streets of the Big Apple. When he was a boy, he won all kinds of awards for running really, really fast. And I was quite convinced that he could literally do it all. But it was his misfortune, or so I used to think, uh, of having his only son, or having an only son, who had almost no aptitude for doing any of those things to any acceptable level. It's not that he didn't try to teach me. It's not that I didn't learn anything. But when he would work on the carburetor of the old 64 Ford Galaxy 500 or put up drywall, I was terrified of messing up. And even on the rare occasions that I did get it right, I knew I'd never be able to do it as well as he did. And so I always felt as if I was deeply disappointing him, that he was disappointed in me. Not because he ever said that or ever indicated that in any overt way, but I always felt as if he should have had another type of son. And in some ways, I think I always was on the search for his approval, for him to say, you did well, you know, you did good. But I never really did hear that. And, you know, at some point, I just think I sort of gave up. 
But I don't think I'm alone in that. I, I think many people, whether from this, their earthly parents or peers or teachers or employers, are on a similar type of search. I think people want to know that they've made the grade, that they've passed the test for someone to say, anyone to say, well done, you've done good, kid, you are good. Many people do that on a spiritual level, I find out. They don't have to be convinced that there's a God in heaven. Most people believe that. They're just fairly convinced that he stares down at them with a stern face of supreme disapproval most of the time. And many are not entirely sure what he wants from them. And even if they did find that out, what he wants from them, few think that they could achieve it. So at some point, a lot of people just give up. Well, in Luke chapter 18, we have two guys who looked for approval from God in different ways, and neither of them could find it initially. Then one of them finally did. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word righteousness mentioned in verse 9, both in the Greek and even in the Old Testament in in the Hebrew, basically have to do with this, with being approved, with being accepted, with passing scrutiny. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus says, let me tell you one common way people try and gain approval that doesn't work. And then let me show you the one way that does. So what I want to do this morning in the few minutes we have is to look at two guys. How did they go about trying to gain that approval from God? What was their approach? And, and finally, how does, the, how does the one finally find approval that he'd always been searching for? Well, the, the first guy I want to look at is a Pharisee. He, he did what I would consider an outside-in approach for approval. Now, something about Pharisees. A Pharisee was a religious leader in uh, this ancient traditional culture who was very concerned with one thing. He was very concerned with moral diligence. He was sure that moral diligence was the way to be approved, to be righteous before God. You need to know that Pharisees were no slouches. 2,000 years of church history and a dozen or more Hollywood Jesus movies have conditioned us to shudder slightly when we even hear the term Pharisee. We expect if we got, if we got close enough to this guy and we kind of looked on his head, you'd see little horns protruding. That was not the case when Jesus delivered his sermon, though. Back then, 2,000 years ago, when he delivered uh, his, this illustration and he spoke to people, when you mentioned the word Pharisee, people wouldn't shudder. Instead, you'd be filled with admiration. You'd be filled with humility, possibly a little fear because they wielded so much power over the culture, but you would have a positive view. If you were running for office, your campaign would bend over backward to elicit the endorsement of a Pharisee. If you had a daughter, the greatest gift she could ever bring you would be the announcement that she was marrying a Pharisee, Daddy. Hallelujah. A Pharisee stood for morality. He tried to obey all the laws of God. He kept in his shirt pocket a list of 660 plus laws of God. They kept that because his aim was to follow every one of them. Now, sometimes they they added even to the law and to the list that they had in their pocket, to that original list. They constructed, if you will, guardrails a few feet away from the original guardrails so that they wouldn't even get close to the edge of the cliff. I think, I think in a sense, they were more religious than God. Every Monday and Wednesday, they fasted and prayed. Now, think about this. I, I have enough trouble going one day not eating, right? When you do a fast, you, you probably have the same trouble. They did it twice a week, every week of the year, 365 days a year. They gave a tenth of their net worth, their net worth every year to God. They purposely lowered their standard of living as an offering 
to God. They kept the commands. They kept their word. They were people who were morally straight. But Jesus was not content with people with outward standards. The fact was that the Pharisees' understanding of sin and virtue was almost completely external. It was completely focused on behavior and violation of or keeping of rules. It wasn't about looking inside. It wasn't about character. It was about how things looked on the outside. It was about behavior. So, for example, sin is perceived completely in terms of discrete individual actions. Verse 11 makes sense. He says, I do not rob. I don't commit adultery. I don't cheat. I give my money 10% away to the church, to the poor. I fast. Uh, You know, uh, I, I pray twice a week in special ways. I go to worship. I do all the religious observances and activities. Notice what he doesn't say, though. He doesn't say, God, I thank you that I'm getting more patient, that I'm a kinder person than I was a year ago, that I'm a gentler person, that I'm able to love people I used to not be able to love. I'm able to keep my joy, my peace, even when things go wrong. doesn't say any of those things. He's not talking about those things. He's absolutely externally focused. His understanding of sin and of virtue is completely oriented to external behavior, keeping and breaking rules. He had an outside-in approach to approval. Then Jesus comes along and says that a completely different kind of righteousness is required in order to be approved by God, in order to be right before him. And it has nothing to do with religious performance, but it has everything to do with inner righteousness. Put it another way, Jesus was saying, for those who desire God's approval, who you are is more important to God than what you do. Jesus was bothered by those who went through the motions of righteousness. You know, that happens sometimes, doesn't it? To to men, to to us, to people who grew up in the environment of faith that many of us grew up in. You know, sometimes kids grow up in a religious home and they struggle to faith and values on their own. They, They know the lingo. They know what's expected of them. You know, they bow their heads when the family prays. Sometimes it's not until they're on their own that they realize that their faith is really the faith of others and not their own. They find out that they've been living with the faith of another, sometimes their parents all along. If they've been doing the moral diligence thing, the first party at the frat house will begin to reveal that. Another way that the Pharisee thought would get him approval with his outside-in approach was to compare himself, comparative righteousness. He looked at others, and he compared himself with them. Folks, i got to tell you something right now. That is the worst way to determine if you approve by God, to compare yourself with other people. Because it's not how we stand in relationship to other people that matters. It's how we stand before God. Because sometimes, sometimes what matters a lot on earth doesn't matter at all in heaven. I might think I'm better than a child molester, but if I compare myself to God... The difference flattens out really fast. Two people can owe $10 million and they go to write a check. One finds out he's got $1,000 in his bank account. The other guy has $1. So they, they empty their bank account. But they're both in big trouble. Neither one of them gets within a country mile of paying what they owe. Now, one of the things that happens when we begin to compare ourselves to be approved is that we begin to separate ourselves from others. Verse 13 said that the tax collector, when he prays later, stands far away from the center of worship. The Pharisee took center stage. Now, the preposition translated about himself 
could easily be translated by himself, which almost certainly means he stood away from everyone else. He, in fact, he physically moved away from the crowd. That's, that's the feeling you get. Probably closer to the altar, probably closer to the center. He stood up getting himself away from everybody else. And you could, you could, you could see that almost certainly physically he was acting out what he was verbally saying, which is, I'm not like these people here. We separate because we think uh, of sin almost completely as an individual external act, which, you know, if I can avoid staying away from other people who do bad behaviors, I'm okay. If I, if I stay away from people who don't share my values, if I stay away from places or processes where people uh, who don't share my values uh, are, are operating, uh, who don't follow my rules, stay away from those people. You know, and, and don't behave, you know, I won't behave like they're behaving. Uh, you know, and if I don't, I'm good to go. Because if you have an externalist understanding of sin, you will invariably have a separatist view of life and we just stay away. You know, we usually look at their vices and think of our virtues. And that, you know, we assume gives us special standing with God. We have a way of cutting other people off at the knees and putting ourselves up on stilts. In comparison, we seem to stand tall. You know, it's the old adage, you know, if I pull your house down, my house stands taller. Pope Gregory the Great, Gregory the Great said of, of this guy in, in this chapter that he was like a man who had killed an elephant, but who was killed by the elephant's fall. One person wrote this, the stench, the smell that comes out of this passage, this horrible aroma that has about it the brimstone of hell, it's the smell of grace gone sour. Grace gone sour. Can't you see it? Can't you hear the separating pride? Doesn't his prayer make you a bit uneasy? He says, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, evildoers, adulterers. I fast twice every week. I give a tenth of all that I take in. I thank you, God, especially that I'm not like, and for the first time he looks around, points, I'm sure, to the tax collector. He says, I'm not like this guy. I'm not like a tax collector. Now, let me ask you, what... What, if anything, upsets you about that prayer? You know what a, a lot of people are upset about? They're upset that the guy seems to be very conceited. <laughs> if you and I were going to give him a bit of spiritual counsel, we would probably urge him to be more modest. We'd say to him, look, you're not an extortionist. You're not a murderer. You're not this, that, or the other thing. It's, we get it. That's all true. But that's how you should pray, especially in public. You, know, you need to pray more circumspectly. You need to you know, show, show a little modesty. If the, if the assortment of sins that men and women commit, uh, you know, are listed, um, you know, one of the ones that we like the least is conceit. We don't like conceited people. We like our heroes modest. Conceit has a way of putting us off. But you know what? As far as God is concerned, conceit never makes it into the big leagues of sin. Conceit is a minor matter. As far as God is concerned, conceit, it's a lot like acne. It's disturbing, but it's not fatal. The trouble with this Pharisee was not conceit. It wasn't pimples on the skin. The trouble was in the bloodstream. He's standing in the temple in the very presence of God and thinking that the differences that matter among men matter among, with the Almighty. The problem with the Pharisee was pride. It wasn't conceit. The outside-in approach never identifies the main problem because underneath the veneer of God-centeredness in his prayer is utter self-centeredness. Underneath the veneer of, you know, the God talk and, and all the God activity and all the morality, it's an adoration of himself. It's an adoration of ego. How different, how different from, let's say, the attitude of the Apostle Paul. 
In Paul's first letter to his young friend Timothy, he said this. He said, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Did you notice the verb? It's not, I was the worst. You know, back there on the Damascus Road when I was persecuting the church, I was the worst. He said, I am the worst of sinners. Now that I've preached the gospel across the empire, now that I've established churches in the major cities, now that I've suffered persecution for God, I am the worst of sinners. I am. Why does he say this? You know why? Because a verse later, he says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God to honor and glory forever and ever be honored. If you live in the presence of God, and live in the light of his holiness, you will see your sin. And when you see your sin, you will see your need of forgiveness, and you will cry out to God for grace to cleanse you, and you will receive it. The saint is always more aware of his or her need of God than his or her successes in God. He's always more aware of how far she has to go, he has to go, than how far they've come. And we never outgrow our need of grace or forgiveness. Isn't that true? And the more you become aware of your need of God's grace, and the more often you cry out for God's cleansing and grace, the more you realize how much God gives you. And that is where we are called to live, Crossing Church. That is the secret of humility. Not looking inward at deficiencies or weaknesses, not looking outward at other people, comparing ourselves with others, with them, with their vices against your virtues, their virtues against your vices. Humility comes from looking up into the face of God who is holy love and loving holiness to see ourselves and our need of forgiveness, to cry out for grace for daily life. Seeing God is to see ourselves, and to see ourselves is to understand what humility is. Those who ask for mercy will receive mercy, and they will stand approved by God. The other guy, the tax collector in the story. He had a different approach. The inside-out approach he had is the one that, that he connected with. Now, let me tell you something about the, the tax collector. If you, if you think a tax collector was merely a guy willing to admit his limitations, you don't understand the place of tax collectors in the first century. Whenever Rome wanted to tax a province, it sold the right to tax the province to the highest bidder. And once a man purchased the right to tax, he was free to take anything the traffic would bear, and usually he discovered that it could bear quite a great deal. You couldn't do business without doing business with the tax collector first. You couldn't move your goods from one town to another town without stopping by his desk first of all. The tax collectors were collaborators. Think about collaborators with the Nazis in occupied Europe during World War II. Think of the word gangster. Okay. He, he was a shakedown artist. This is a bad dude by anybody's estimation. You know, extortion was built into his job. Injustice was part of his trade. You know, some men are traitors by one craven deed of cowardice, Benedict Arnold. But the tax collector was a traitor all day long, every day. And as a result, he was despised by almost everyone on the planet. He spent much of his time with extortionists and evildoers and the sexually loose. And you know what? He could have cared less. <laughs> because if he did care, he couldn't have done the job that he was doing. You know, if you or I say, I don't need anybody else's approval, it doesn't matter what other people say. All that matters is what I think. 
You do that, and you eventually will kill your heart. You're in the process of hardening yourself. You're going to make yourself literally evil. The only people who do not care about anyone else's opinion are evil people. Who cares what he or she thinks? I care about what nobody else's opinion is. All I care about is my own. You do that, you are going in the direction of evil and hardness. In fact, you'll even make your sin into a virtue. You begin to say things like, well, yeah, I've done this and that and the other thing, but at least I'm honest about it. At least I'm not a hypocrite like the rest of them. I know who I am. That makes me better than they are. And abracadabra, you've turned your sin into a virtue. Listen, as far as the world was concerned, this was a bad man. So over here, you got a good man, but Jesus said he's lost. And over here is a bad man, and Jesus said he's saved. Why? What happened? The Pharisee was sure he had approval, and he didn't. But the tax collector, somewhere along the line, realized he wasn't. He realized along the line that he wasn't approved. He became convinced of that, that he was far, far from being approved by God. But see, he had heard rumors. He had listened when someone said, those who ask for mercy receive mercy and stand approved by God. And that day, I think he said to himself, well, what do I have to lose? How do you handle your problem of approval? You got a problem. I know I have a problem. How do you you deal with it? How are you dealing with this incredible hunger and desire? Jesus said, There's only one way. It's the way the tax collector goes. It's not the outside-in way. It's the inside-out way. And Jesus outlined the inside-out way. Here's what he said. He continued in the story. He said, the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. A lot of versions say a sinner. Now, look carefully. Look carefully at that. And you'll see how he solved this problem. There's, first of all, a whole new way to understand repentance that we have to have. Uh, It does not actually say what you see in the English translation, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He doesn't actually say that. He uses a definite article in the Greek. And and, and my guess is that the translators here decided that it would be just too confusing. But he doesn't say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He says, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Do you know the significance of that? It means he's not comparing himself. See, if you think of sin externally and comparatively, like a Pharisee, there's always someone who has done more sins than you, always. So if you're thinking of sin sort of externally and comparatively, you're only ever going to be a sinner, never the sinner. See, this guy is thinking in absolute terms. I doubt he's actually saying that he's the worst sinner on the planet. What he's really saying is, look, all I know is that I'm lost and where everybody else is, it really doesn't matter. He's thinking of sin the way you and I ought to think of sin. If you want to fix the problem of of righteousness, don't look at what you've done wrong. Don't look at the discreet individual actions. And I'm not saying that robbing a bank is okay. I'm not saying adultery is okay. But you can't start there. You see, this man knew how to repent of adultery. He knew how to repent of robbery when that happened. This man repented of his sins, but he didn't repent of the sin underneath the sin. And that's trying to be his own savior by what he did and to gain approval. Here's what you have to do. You have to say, I'm so hungry for approval 
I'm still so needy of assurance. I repent of the sin underneath, not only underneath my sins, but the sin underneath my good deeds. I repent of the motivation that has been driving me all my life. I realize that I've never wanted to be dependent, God, on your radical grace, but today I throw myself on your mercy. What he's saying is, Lord, I need atonement for my sin. Well, where does that come from? Here's how it comes. Jesus Christ became the sinner. He became the ultimate sinner. He died on the cross for us. He was looking at you and me, I believe, when he looked at his disciples falling asleep, you know, in the garden that day, and asking them, just stay awake just for a couple of minutes, please, please, just for a couple of minutes. And they couldn't even do that, but he went to the cross for them anyway. Do you remember? He died for them anyway. Here is how Christians deal with the problem of approval. You have to know, first of all, Jesus loved you so much that he made atonement for you. Secondly, he made such atonement for you that now he can love you fully. Uh, What does that mean? He can come in. Once he died for you and paid the penalty for your sin, in spite of all the things you've done wrong, now you're accepted in him. You're utterly approved in him. First of all, he loved you enough to come and do the atonement thing. (laughs) You know, but once he does the atonement, the atonement means that he can come in and give you approval right now. You don't have to wait until the end of your life and say, did I do enough good things? You know, you, you know, did I balance the scale right? Jesus has done it for you. Jesus is the propitiation. He is the atonement. He is the thing the tax collector was looking for. He is the one that changes everything. Because of Christ's atoning, atoning sacrifice, those who ask for mercy receive mercy and listen. They stand approved before God. It's inside out. It's not like religion. You know, if I do good on the outside, eventually I feel approved on the inside. But the gospel is you can be utterly sure of God's approval, utterly sure of his love, utterly sure he has seen you at your worst to the bottom, but he loves you and he'll never let you go. If you start inside with the knowledge of that approval, then on the outside you'll start to live like you want to live, like you ought to live. But it'll be different than the way the moral person lives who's working outside in. A couple of years before he died, my father said to me, seemingly out of the blue, you know, you're good at what you do. And I nearly broke down. I feel emotional right now. It was a moment that probably... I don't know, it didn't mean that much to him, but it meant everything to me. Here it is, Crossing Church. Because of Christ's atoning sacrifice, those who ask for mercy receive mercy and stand approved before God. And at that moment, when you stand before him, no other approval will even matter except his approval. Call on him today for the mercy that he freely gives. Call on him today, and you will be approved by God. 